1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thankgivings, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this is... For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Has anybody noticed that uh, our world is a messy place? Um, You you may have picked that up along the way. that would apply certainly to the world as a whole that would uh, apply to the greater world situation that would apply to national things and it would apply certainly to those things that we experience within our own life and relationships Uh, The world is a messy place. If you can imagine, uh, you know, this is not, don't imagine, actually think with me historically, uh, this is not something new. Uh, Paul writing this personal letter to Timothy, saying, Timothy, you are there in Ephesus. You, in that city, you are placed uh, under my sending you, but truly placed under God, to make some corrections with what's going on with God's church there in Ephesus. And there are, uh, uh, Paul is frequently reminding Timothy, there's all kinds of situations going on. In this church in Ephesus, you have people who have become believers, have said, I want to trust in Christ, I want to join the family of God, but they've come out of the worship that was present in Ephesus. Now, you know, we're not talking about something just a little off track. We're talking about people who believed that the way to reach the true God was through the goddess Artemis or Diana. They had been raised in that background. They had been heard it all of their lives. They had experienced it in the marketplace, in their conversations with friends, in their family upbringing, that the way to reach the true God was through the goddess. Now, since the kids have been dismissed, I can at least touch on this. The way you got 
to if there are a few kids around, you know, cover their ears or explain it to them later in its fullness. The way that you contacted or made relationship with the goddess was by going to the Diana Temple, the Artemis Temple, and having intercourse with the temple prostitutes. That was how you did religion. That was how you got to God. Connect with the goddess through sex with the temple prostitutes. That allowed the goddess to be the mediator who brought you to God and brought God close to you. Now, I mean, we could probably, you know, pack the house if we said, well, here's, here's true worship. Uh, we have prostitutes available for you. You know, and we sit here and we shake our heads as people who are on the journey of learning about God and his will and Christ. We shake our heads. But I would like to remind you and really ask us to pause and think because while things have not gotten this blatant in the church, the true church of our true Lord Jesus Christ, there are from time to time, again and again, teachings rising up that say, hey, there are, there are other ways to get to God. There are ways to get to God by your own efforts, working hard, keeping all of God's instructions, staying on track, walking the path, and if you're good enough, you can get to God. Now, that doesn't sound as bad as saying, hey, we're going to offer prostitutes. But it's just as far away from the true message, the true good news, as what was happening in Ephesus. Now, the other thing you have to understand and remember as we're reading this letter is Ephesus was part of the empire of the Roman Empire. One little peep, Rome. Okay, this the, don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah. Don't, don't even be afraid to be wrong. It's okay. Okay, I'm, I'm a counselor. I'll just say, hmm, how does it feel when you say that? <laughs> you see, this was the Roman Empire. Have you, can you think back to your days in school uh, what do we know about the Roman Empire? What were the uh, political situations going on? What was Rome, the Roman Empire, the emperors themselves, what were they all about? Dominate the known world. Take over, absorb, bring in. Be in charge of the entire known world. What was the moral situation in Rome? <laughs> Good, positive, uh, encouragement to live Christian lives, 
Hedonistic is a word, right, that comes to mind. Please yourself. What was the religious situation? You got multiple gods. They had brought that down through the Greeks, adapted it, given many of the Greek gods Roman names. Uh, there are many gods. Some gods are higher, some gods are lower. But if you push the right buttons, the gods will do what you want them to. Idolatry. <laughs> okay. This is what's going on in the scenario. The emperor at the time of Paul writing this letter to Timothy is Nero. Good leader, bad leader. <laughs> Are we all agreed on that? Uh, he, he was in the process of losing his mind. He was in the process of descending deeper and deeper into moral decline and into what we would probably refer to today as mental illness. He was often out of Rome, off the scene, leaving the government to sort of tend to itself. He wasn't present. And right around, the best we know, this letter to Timothy was written between the years 62 and 66 AD. In 64 AD, there was a terrible fire, wiped out great portions of Rome, and Nero got to do what he was intending to do all along. He wanted to get the focus off of himself and his poor leadership and his poor governance. And so he said, who started the fire? The Christians did it. And that began the first wave of official Roman persecution. God's people had been persecuted down the way, but that began the era of official persecution. So we are probably with this letter right at the time or slightly before this all comes to a head. And Paul is writing to his true son, as he calls him, my true son in the faith. My dear son, my true son, I want to write some things to you as you participate and lead in God's church under these circumstances. I don't know, John, could you use a letter like this in this time frame leading the church? Uh, I think uh, Ali has not been feeling well, so Nikolai's not here, but in uh, absentia, I could ask Nikolai. Nikolai, could you use a letter like this? Brent, could you? I think Brent's with the kids probably. Um, boy, give Brent a hug. He faithfully serves this church. Okay. Brent, could you use a letter 
under God's inspiration with instructions directly for you how to lead the church of God in this time? Mike, could you use it? And Paul writes, and he opens this section. Remember, as John uh, taught us last week and opened uh, the last part of chapter 1 to us, Paul got to uh, sort of talking about Jesus, and it's almost as if he has uh, a moment of Holy Spirit distraction. Uh, sometimes I share with my clients, you know, rabbit trails are good as long as they lead to rabbits. Well, this is a rabbit trail of Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that leads him to reflecting and paying attention to Christ. And so in chapter 2 then, what we have is chapter 2. Of course, that break wouldn't have been there with the bold print and the heading and the number numeral two there. It would have been seamless part of the letter. Paul says, oh yeah, by the way, therefore, I'm coming back to my main topic was, Timothy, you need to make some corrections in God's church. And he says, therefore, I urge you. Now, um, let, let's see. I, Phil, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna urge you to do something, what's that gonna look like? Hey, Phil, if you have the time, could you possibly? It's probably gonna be a bit stronger than that, wouldn't you think? Probably in your job, you sometimes need to urge people to take an appropriate action. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. I'm asking you on the authority I have from God. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. I'm urging you with everything in me and all of the authority that God has given me and the work I'm doing, I urge you to pay attention to this. See, Timothy's in this time. He could have paid attention to so many things. He could have looked in so many areas. He could have had so many strategies. But Paul says here, I urge you, first of all, this is my first instruction to you Timothy in the church uh, throughout the rest of the letter Paul's going to come to instructions about this and instructions about this this is first and most often when this word first occurs in the New Testament it's saying not just first in time here's the list one this is item one on my list it certainly is that. But more than that, it's saying, Paul is saying, I urge you because this is of primary importance. Timothy, before I go on to give you instructions about worship in the church, before I go on to give you instructions about husbands and wives, before I go on 
to give you instructions about how the church should look at you, Timothy, as their leader, representing me, who is representing Christ. Before I get all of that, there's something far more important. What is the number one instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy here? Can you characterize it in one word? Pray. Pray. Don't strategize, don't set rules for the church, don't set up chairs, don't make sure the music is in place. All of these are important. No denigration of any of that. Don't get your sermons ready. Timothy, number one instruction for God's people. Pray. We live in these turbulent times, and I fear and I'm speaking for myself, that prayer is not the first place I go. No matter what political perspective you take, no matter what your opinions are, your understandings about current issues, no matter where you stand, on critical issues, no matter what your feelings about how the culture around you is obeying or disobeying God, don't start other than with prayer. And I must confess that in these last several years, I have found myself slipping into addressing, facing, forming my perspective, deciding what to do before I think of praying. I urge you, first and foremost, that you pray. Now, Paul, as uh, a good teacher, says, now let me explain what prayer means. And he uses four terms here that fit under the prayer heading. He says, I want there to be petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. By the way, English Bibles in translating this have you know gone in various ways what you want to hear is that all four of those categories are plurals hey it's not just thanksgiving it's thanksgivings it's not just intercession it's intercessions it's not just prayer it's prayers it's not just uh, petitions and petition it's petitions Got enough sibilance in there for you? What does that tell you? Paul, under God's guidance, writing this letter, says plural, 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 plural. What does that tell us? Do it on Sunday, carry on the rest of the week. No. Uh, Do it at an annual 
prayer festival? No. Do it on Friday night when there's a prayer and worship night? No. Pray, pray, pray. Petitions are formal appeals. Same word that would be used to appeal to a government entity in the time. And so Paul says there's a way in which we're coming to God, the God of all gods, the king over all kings, and we're, we're, we're coming with a petition, with a formal request time after time after time. It's a thoughtful request. It's been well planned out. It's been laid out so that we're asking for something specific. Prayers is more general. But prayers often refers to what's happening communally. You know, I guess you could get up, uh, you know, a, a petition and have lots of people sign it and file it formally. But prayer specifically takes us into, we ought to be praying together. Fourth category, intercession, or third, intercessions. Intercession is very personal. This is where I get down on my knees and I wrestle with God. And I stay down there and I intercede. I ask, I ask, I ask on behalf of another person or other people in their needs. And then as Paul almost always does when he talks about praying, he throws in thanksgivings. Now this is about to get tough for us because Paul is going to specifically mention and specifically specifically point out pray for Nero and pray for the other governing authorities as it trickles down the line regional and local and so for those people you need to make petitions, prayers, intercessions, and this one is going to stop some of us in our tracks, thanksgivings. You see, Paul is interested here in Timothy starting with this number one priority. First of all, in general, I want you to make these petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all kinds of people. Uh, by the way, I could have taught this passage uh, by picking out all the different times that Paul says all here. Uh, he says prayers for all, for kings and for all those in authority. So we can live lives in all godliness and holiness. Who wants all people to be saved? This God. Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Were you counting? How many was that? One, two, three, 
4, five times in seven verses, Paul uses the word all. And it helps us to understand the use of that word all throughout the scriptures can mean all, meaning every, you know, I want you guys, after we're done, pick up all the chairs. What do I mean by that? Each and every chair. I don't really want that. Somebody probably does. That's not my request. I'm not urging you to do that at this point. Okay. Okay. But but in in the uh, stories of Jesus, in the Gospels, and the stories of John the Baptist, it says all Jerusalem came out to see John and to hear what he was teaching. Are we to understand by that that each and every single individual in the city of Jerusalem came out to hear John teach? Doesn't make sense. Because very often when scripture uses the word all, especially in a context like this where we're talking about people that are unworthy, if you will, who are not following God, the command is pray for all kinds of people. Pray for people you like, pray for people you dislike. Pray for people that share your views, pray for people who do not share your views. Pray for people who are like you culturally, ethnically, pray for people who are not like you. Paul's going to wrap up this section saying, I am an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. That term is certainly used ethnically, and it's also used to refer to those who don't follow God. Pray for all kinds of people, and then Paul elaborates, especially pray for the king or the emperor, What is Paul saying here? I want you to make petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for the pagan emperor of Rome, Nero. All right. You fill in your own gaps here. Who is it that you should be praying for? Not because you like them, not because you care for their policies, not because you care, because you feel strongly about what they did historically, what they do in the present tense, what you're afraid they might do in the future. Pray for the emperor, pray for the king, pray for the top leader. And don't only pray in general, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. You see, what do we do? What do we do when we don't like the way things are going? What do we do if we don't like the leader at the top? Well, in these days, we mock and we meme.
guilty. Past and present. Or we flip the other way and we look at the top leader as if they are God and can do no wrong. And so we promote and we retweet. Listen to me talking. I, even, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tweet, let alone retweet. I think there's something called Twitter. And then I learned there's TikTok, which I thought was this thing on my wrist here, but I find out it's not. You see, Paul is saying to us, I think, if we apply it in the contemporary situation, like what's going on, don't like what's going on, see that the ruler is good, see that the ruler is not good, put this thing down and get on your knees. How's that for urging? Let's quit trying to accomplish the purposes of God by human means. Now, I'm glad to continue this conversation. I'm stating it strongly because that's what we do when we're trying to get people's attention. I would love in any case to chat about these things and to allow us to hear the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God behind it. But please, my friends, my sisters, my brothers, let's get on our knees and follow this first instruction instead of trying to do it our own way. And just to add one more piece to this, when Paul says here, and this is true in many, many places in the New Testament, when we are asked to pray for others, a particular Greek word is used, huper. Not going to bore you with that, but simply to say to pray for someone is not to, not merely to make them and their needs the content of your prayer. You know, dear Lord, I pray for my cousin Corrine who is sick with COVID. Now that's good. Please don't stop doing that. But that's not what the Bible means when it says pray for. Pray for who pair has a very specific meaning. It is a priestly meaning. Peter tells us that you and I in Jesus' family have all been made priests. We have a role to take people to God who couldn't get there otherwise. The idea of pray for is, is Nero praying to the true God for himself? No, do it for him. Stand in the gap. Pray for. And then Paul goes on to say, in verse 2, pray Pray for all people, verse 2, for kings, for all those in authority, 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Let's take that a little a bit apart a little bit. Okay, who would like to pray? Hey, I'd like to have a peaceful life. Um, that'd be okay. <laughs> I'd like to be. A, I'd like to have a quiet life, no hassles. I'm on board for that. But Paul is going so much deeper here. Because when we slow down and we pay attention, Paul in this letter to Timothy is not pray for having peace. This is not the content of the prayer. Oh, dear Lord, give us peace. This is the reason that we pray, or let me put it the other way around. This is the outcome of our praying. If you want to have peace, pray. If you want to have a quiet life, pray. This is more than what we're asking for. This is what we get when we pray. And by the way, the words peaceful and quiet here have very little whatsoever to do with the world around us. Scripturally, peace does not refer to the absence of conflict. Peace is shalom. It is the deep and real sense of well-being we get from being in God's family. And so what we're praying here is for an internal peace and an experience of quietude. That's emphasized by Paul's follow-on because he says, so we can live in all godliness and holiness. Okay. How much does the world around you, how much does government policy, how much does the, the speed limit signs on the roads, how much do the laws and regulations have to do with godliness and holiness in your own life and in our life as a church? Zero. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. Did they have a good law? You better say yes, because God, with his own hand, wrote it in stone. Which, by the way, where, where we get the, the saying, oh, it's not written in stone. Well, this was written in stone by the very God of all gods and the king of all kings by himself. How good was that law at regulating the people of Israel's holiness? Not very. It was the people who were trusting God and allowing God to put righteousness into their hearts and onto their account that lived godly and holy lives. It had nothing to do with the laws and the policies. It had everything to do with change of hearts. 
Now, why, why all of this? Timothy's in a mess. The church around him is in a mess. The, the culture and the authorities and the rules and the laws and the lack thereof and the policies and the persecutions and the false accusations and the looking down of the world on God's people, all this is going on. And after giving this strong, urging command to them, to Timothy, to pass on to the church, Paul says, let me tell you the big why behind all of this. Because this is good and pleases God our Savior. Paul is primarily interested, primarily focused on God, and in particular, God who is the Savior. God who rescues people. Nero ain't going to rescue anybody. And I would say Washington ain't going to rescue anybody. No matter who's in the role. Sacramento isn't going to rescue anybody. No matter who's in the role. God is the Savior. And this kind of prayer on their behalf, because they're not praying for themselves, is good. And it pleases God, our Savior. This is our God who wants all kind of people to be saved and all kinds of people to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, ultimately, Paul gives a very specific command, but the foundation underlying that command is missional. I want you, because you pray, you're going to experience peace within. You're going to experience quietude within. You're going to live holy, godly lives as an outcome of this kind of praying. And all of that I want not for your own benefit, not for your own comfort, not for your own tax exemption, not for your own happy-go-lucky life because somewhere in the Bible God promised everyone should be happy all the time. No. But underlying that is the foundation that this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all kinds of people to come to him and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's primary driver in his instructions to Timothy is this, the message. I want you to live in this way 
no matter what's going on, so that the message of God goes out from you to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to the people you come in contact with, that God's good message of wanting to save all kinds of people goes out. That's what drives us. Not getting our way. Not being comfortable. Not having what we deserve. What needs to drive us is God's good message of rescue. And so Paul wraps up this part of his instructions to Timothy by focusing on two things. One, there's only one mediator. Remember what I told you, what's going on in Ephesus? How do you get mediation to the highest God? You get mediation through the religious cult of Artemis, and that is attained, that kind of intimacy is attained through promiscuous relationships with the temple prostitutes, that's what they've been hearing, and some of them have brought that along, a little mistaken. You see, why is Paul going to go on to talk about wives and husbands in the church? Because this is the context. And Paul says, no, there, there's one God and one mediator. It's not the goddess. It's not the prostitutes. It's not Nero. It's not all those in authority. There is one mediator between God and human beings. And if, if you listen to this carefully, Paul's going to do a, a double here, right? One mediator between God and human beings, the Jesus Christ, who was himself human. You see the parallels there? Mediator between God and human beings. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. He's divine. He's the Son of God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in... Okay, you still with me? It's, it's warm. People are sleepy. Can you smell it yet? We were warned about this. That wasn't a promise. That was a warning. Don't get distracted by the smell of cooking meat. <laughs> Stay with me for a couple more minutes. The one mediator is the one who is both God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And just in case we missed it, you see, I asked what early on what you saw as the theme, and you rightly said prayer, but I think the foundational underlying theme, why even pray, why even think about these things, why consider, why set aside all other mediators, 
is because of the message of the good news going out. And so Paul says, let me, let me use myself as an example now. As he wraps it up in verse 7. For this reason, okay, for this purpose, for this purpose of Jesus being the mediator, the only mediator, for this purpose of God wanting all kinds of people to be saved, for this purpose of God being the Savior, for this purpose, I myself was appointed to be, and three things that he mentions, a herald, an apostle, and a true and faithful teacher. And, and just in case uh, people were going to ask questions, because they were in Ephesus, who is this Paul? What right does he have? We're Ephesians. We had the goddess. Now we have the true God. We can make these things synchronize and fit together into a new system and worship God, the true God, in the old way of worship. Who is this Paul? Paul underlines, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying here. I was appointed to be a herald. Okay. Anybody here named Harold? Uh, spelled differently. Okay, so I'm not going to step on toes. What does it mean to be a herald? Hark the herald, angel. What does it mean to be a herald? Announcing good news. Read all about it. Here's the news feed, top headline. There's one God and there's one mediator. God is the savior. This mediator is God, Christ, and human himself. He's the only mediator between God and man. It's good news, announce it. This is the broad announcement. This is telling it far and wide. This is telling it whether people listen or they don't listen. This is not engaging in argumentation or debate or proof. You're just announcing that's a herald. Paul also says, I'm an apostle. Apostle, as you may, have, may remember, is one specifically sent by an authority figure to speak on that authority's behalf. Okay. Now, if you feel, if you're going to go away from this feeling, you're an apostle in the same way Paul is, we should have a chat. Because some of Jesus' apostles had a special job to do. Uh, listen, when I speak, it's not the word of God. You need to take everything I've said today and put it under the microscope of the word of God and say, Did, is what Mike said true or not true? You need to be checking on that. You need not take my word for it. In fact, I urge you not to take my word for it. Paul had a particular kind of apostleship, but you and I also are sent by God who is the Savior, by Jesus who is the mediator, to specifically explain and unfold the message. The herald says it generally. The apostle says it specifically. Sit down, converse, answer questions. 
exercise holy curiosity in wrestling with the questions that are tough. Finally, then, Paul says, I am a true and faithful teacher. Note again, teaching who? Teaching the believers? Teaching people who are ethnically and religiously like me? No, teaching the Gentiles. True and faithful teaching takes it one level deeper. And so I leave us with, and I leave myself. I sat down this morning and wrote out this passage on a three by five card so that I'm committing it more and more to my memory, which is not always precise. Not because memorizing the words is magic, but because I want this more and more and more in my heart. And before I judge or condemn, before I agree, before I hold a position, before I try to argue that position and persuade others of that per position, above and beyond any of that, I want to be offering petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings so that I experience the peace and the quietude of God so that I can turn around, tell that widely, tell that specifically, and faithfully teach and discuss it with those who do not know God. Father, we... Wow, I am, we are going to desperately need your help to do this. This is not our natural way. The messages we send and the messages we receive are not always in line with this. Our opinions on the day are not always in line with this. Our reactions to the day are not always in line with this. God, teach us not to react, but to respond with prayer and with speaking out about your good news. You, God, our Savior, in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Amen.